This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is The Digital Show on Business Radio. Here is Professor Kevin Warback. Hi there, everyone. Welcome to The Digital Show here on Sirius XM Business Radio, the show where we talk about technology and business. And we have a very, very special show today, uh, but uh, in some ways uh, a bittersweet show. Uh, after almost four years of being on the air with The Digital Show, this will be our final live episode. And so we thought we what we would do instead of uh, just having uh, some uh, typical guests like we have on is we have brought back all four of the hosts from the show over the four years. And we're going to have a special conversation about important uh, and breaking topics in technology. Uh, so uh, as you heard, I'm Kevin Werbeck. Uh, I'm a professor of legal studies and business ethics here at Wharton. Uh, with me in the studio, we also have uh, our co-host, Kartik Osanagar, professor here in the Department of Operations, Information, and Decisions. So hello, Kartik. Hello, Kevin. Great to be back with you. We also have uh, Lauren Feldman, senior editor of Forbes, uh, who was uh, one of our earlier hosts and is now the uh, co-host of the Mind Your Business show here on Business Radio, which is Thursdays at 1 p.m. Lauren, hello. Really great to be back with you guys. My original home here. Appreciate it. Great to have you. Uh, And finally, on the phone, we have uh, Reed Hunt, former chairman of the Federal Communications Commission, one of our uh, original launch hosts. And uh, Reed, it's really great to talk to you again. I think I get it. Couldn't couldn't let you go out without your signature song, Reed. There you go. Thank you very much. So uh, what we're going to do is uh, divide up the show into four segments, and each of us is going to take the lead on one of the four segments and lead a conversation, uh, ask some questions, uh, discuss some topics. But as always, we welcome your thoughts and comments as well. Uh, we'd love to hear from you on uh, what you think is important in the world today and uh, thoughts about uh, what we're talking about. As a reminder, you can call us anytime. One eight four four nine. Well, sorry, one eight four four. You think at, at this point I would know how to do the uh, the uh, phone line for the show, but uh, uh, eventually I'll get it. One eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Okay. Uh, so with that, Reed, uh, let's turn it over to you for the uh, first half hour. <laughs> Great. <laughs> and and what does that mean to turn it over to me? I want to just throw this out to all of you. Uh, This whole Internet thing has not worked out uh, the way that you promised, Kevin, when I was at the SEC (laughs) and you explained to me that that, uh, this Internet thing was going to disrupt all of the oligopolistic media and we were going to have uh, a tremendous expansion of individual rights and freedom of speech and democracy was going to flourish. Instead, the uh, uh, United States has a, uh, selected as a president a guy who lost the popular vote by the uh, biggest uh, margin that any president has ever uh, uh, had happen, and the Russians have uh, hacked the election system, thanks, I presume, to the Internet, and then uh, a new oligopoly that is more powerful economically and socially than any that's ever been devised in the history of humanity has taken over uh, the uh, uh, shape and the substance of the internet, and uh, you know, uh, dwarfs the significance of uh, broadcast TV back in the old days. Plus, claims to be utterly uh, unregulated and unregulatable. Uh, and not to mention all of that, I get robocalls on all of my phones all the time, <laughs> and my uh, email account is constantly hacked, and I have to spend uh, thirty or forty minutes a day changing my passwords. So this is not what I hoped for. <laughs> These are not the flying cars you were promised. Exactly. Comment? <laughs> uh, well, I, I have some thoughts, but anyone else, Kartik or Lauren, do you want to take that? Um, yeah, Reed, this is Kartik here. Um, I, have to, I have to agree with you. It's it's not what we were promised, but I think it's work in progress. I, I don't think, uh, you know, we have the final word on this yet. Um you know, this is still an early innings for the Internet. There's no doubt that the last year have brought to the surface a lot of problems with the Internet. Uh, but I think the way I see this um, 
internet is essentially all about unlocking information. So it means that we have uh, the best and the worst being unlocked. So you're on the one hand seeing great fast access to information that uh, is no longer necessarily controlled by a few organizations. You get it live, you get it fast, but it also unlocks the worst. So it means that somebody who understands the the medium can manipulate it and uh, leverage that knowledge to push whatever they want. And so we've seen that. And I think that's the nature of a medium that's so decentralized, that's essentially um, a network, uh, if you will, as opposed to a broadcast medium. So I think it's the nature of the design of a distributed network as opposed to a broadcast uh, medium. Um, And so while I'm surprised, exposed, I can make sense of it. But I also go back to what I started with, which is that this is work in progress. So I'm not going to be disillusioned yet. This is something we've all got to sort of collectively figure out. Uh, This is Lauren Reed, and uh, my heart is with you. It's not the Internet I was promised either. As a journalist, I can tell you uh, a lot of the companies that I worked for throughout my career no longer exist because of that Internet, and it's hard to feel great about that. On the other hand, uh, it's funny, just on the on the drive down here today, I was listening to a podcast, and it was a conversation between Ezra Klein and ta Coates, and they both said that they owe their careers to uh, blogs, that if it hadn't been for blogs, which disrupted you know the, the journalism business that I knew, uh, they'd be doing something else. They have no idea what it would be. So... Oh uh, yes, work in progress, and not without some uh, some silver linings. I mean, I know what it would be since, like you, I'm very familiar with the quality of their writing. Um, what it would be is that they'd be uh, getting paid about two or three times as much, and you know, uh, they'd be working for the. Uh, I think they're doing fairly well, Reed. Uh, and they'd get <laughs> they'd be being paid two or three times as much. I mean. Uh, Aren't some of these facts incontestable? The total amount of revenue that goes to journalists has gone down and not up. That has to be true, right? Sure. Yeah, of course. Um, And uh, the total amount of volume of journalism has gone way, way up. So on a per-word basis, you know, these are the uh, scriveners of Grub Street here. You know, we've, we've recreated a, a uh, servant class that is paid way less than the minimum wage. Uh, and that's that's what's happened to journalism. Uh, but, uh, you know, let's just let's let's put aside the tea and sympathy. The the thing that really uh, uh, troubles me is uh, what we're. What, what is gradually being disclosed about Facebook and Google, I'll tell you the way I read it, and then you guys can correct me. The way I read it is Facebook's position is, yes, we have algorithms that sell uh, racist and pro-Nazi ads to audiences, and we try to create communities algorithmically that consume that. And we also uh, have our doors open to any number of rubles that want to come in so that we also uh, are happy to have foreign intervention. And we regard all of this as free speech. So go pound sand. Yeah, I don't uh, think did that's... Did I get that right? Is that basically their story? I don't think that's entirely fair, but they clearly screwed up. Um... Which, which part is not fair? Uh, they did say it's not them, but their algorithms, so... They're not guilty. That's like saying, you know, the gun killed somebody. I didn't hold it, except for I did hold it. Uh, and they did say that, right? And then they said they don't know how to fix it, which that has to be, technologically speaking, you know, using a computer science phrase, a lie, right? Uh, and then they said, uh, they said rubles are as good as dollars, and, you know, we don't pay any attention to that. Well, that's not what other industries uh, do when it comes to foreign uh, money transfers. So did I misunderstand? Isn't this what they've said? And then they said, well, this is the meaning of free speech, meaning it's free speech if foreign intervention comes in to hack your election system. That's not – I went to law school. I didn't, have to, I didn't go to Harvard Business School to get my view of the First Amendment. I went to law school. And, and what I learned in law school is that is not free speech. Hello, that is called conduct. 
Yeah. So what I, am I missing here? No, no. On that, you're not missing. They clearly they screwed up, and and the problem is they they have an ideology which says we're not journalists, we don't take a viewpoint because we just create these systems that let people connect and things get better when people connect. So I, there's no question that there could have been well, you better with that, right? mechanisms. You, you agree that they, I mean, they edit. So we know that if they aren't journalists, they're at least editors, right? Okay. I mean, is that not right? Well, so this is the issue. They create the algorithms and the algorithms make choices uh, that's different than than sitting down and saying yes, this, no, that. But you're absolutely right. In lots of cases, it has the same effect. The algorithms are computers as editors, are they not? I don't know. Kartik, Kartik here is our uh, computer science expert. So, <laughs> what do you think? Well, um, you know, I, I think you're bringing up uh, an issue which goes far beyond Facebook and even current times. This is going to be probably. One of the central questions about technology and technology regulation over the next several years, which is how do you hold algorithms accountable? They're making so many decisions for us, but I think the nature of algorithms are changing. They're going from, they're changing from um, software that were programmed, whose logic was programmed by human beings. And so you could say that, okay, there's a certain amount of accountability there because what they do have been actually programmed to uh, systems that learn on their own based on data that kind of make decisions on their own. And so, um, you know, if you have an algorithm that's making decision based on data, you know, and the data are biased in some ways, it makes uh, decisions that ex post, you can sometimes look at it and say, hey, here's what happened, but how do you prevent it? Um, and I think this is going to be a huge issue. And and, and going beyond Facebook, uh, you'll have algorithms in driverless cars or uh, investing our money for us. And some of these are just black box algorithms, uh, you know, machine learning algorithms that learn everything from data. And they're very limited programming over there in terms of the logic of the um, of the the algorithm. So, you know, I guess coming back to what you were asking, as a technologist, I see why Facebook says that, hey, you know, uh, it, this is an algorithm and it's not like we intentionally did this and it's not like we even anticipated this. This just happened. But on the other hand, I think this is something that regulators will have to worry more and more about. We will need more transparency in these algorithms. We will need, um, I think not just transparency, but also an ability to have outsiders, uh, people outside of Facebook be able to evaluate their algorithms, or, uh, people outside Google be able to evaluate their algorithms and, and test them. Um, but yeah, I think it's going to be a big issue and there's no easy solutions. If I'm developing an algorithm today and I programmed its logic, I can you know, certainly say, okay, I screwed up, here's the mistake I made. But on the other hand, if I'm switching to this machine learning kind of world, and uh, then I kind of pass the buck and say, it was not that I programmed it to do this, you know, it learned from data to do this, and it learned from data to do that. Um, but yeah, they absolutely need, uh, they need more transparency, they need greater accountability. I think this is well, uh, look, not I acceptable. Mean, uh, you're making a really interesting uh, point, but... <laughs> Um, a machine does not have a First Amendment right to express itself. We all agree with that, right? Absolutely. Okay, so therefore, it's a uh, category error for Facebook to come to Washington and say, we made these algorithms, but they're protected by free speech. Oh, yeah, there's a, there's a big problem in general about the extent to which companies are trying to leverage the First Amendment you know, as opposed to basically right. allowing people to talk to, sort of allowing them to limit right. privacy. So, the, an so, so yeah. the answer to back to Facebook is you do not have any. Now we're we're operating somewhat superficially here because we, you know, I only know what I read in the paper, and by definition, that's pretty thin because <laughs> the papers are pretty thin now. You didn't read it on Facebook. Internet, you read it. Right? You you actually read a paper still. Right. That's what I mean. <laughs> I mean, like we we've hollowed that out. But based on the you know the residue of news that is left, what I see is that it's high time for everybody on this call and all of our listeners and everybody in Congress and everybody in the whole world to say, your algorithms have no free speech right. And our fundamental uh, 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 legal framework of 
responsibility for tort, responsibility for crime, applies to you and your company. And if you made an autonomous car that hits people, you're liable. If you made that autonomous vehicle that hit people, you're liable. And if you and if you invented machine learning so that the inference is always made uh, that uh, that when Reed Hunt is walking down the street, um, you know he he's really not a person, um, but uh, he's a uh, uh, you know he, he's a dog. And your autonomous car's algorithm should teach the car to drive over that dog and avoid hitting a person. Whoops, I wasn't a dog after all. I was really me. Uh, well, that was, you know, you did the wrong machine learning. You drew, you drew the wrong inference, and you're liable. And you're liable. So the fundamental concept yeah. of liability here doesn't seem to me to be very complicated. It seems to me that Facebook has nowhere to stand if its fundamental principle is Yes, we build a tool for the Russians to hack the election, but it's not, we have no responsibility. Uh, to me, you know, I'm sorry, that actually is treason. That's actually a capital crime. Are you saying they did it deliberately? What, there's no intent required here. If you have built a machine that does this, then your element of intent is, is proved by creating the machine that did it. I, don't know, I think we're all all a little bit speechless at that. But, uh, what, but what's the what's the problem in my reasoning? Uh, if no, the, I build, the problem. If I yeah. would you agree with this? If I designed an autonomous car and armed it with software and programmed it so that what it learned to do was to drive over little old ladies on the sidewalk, you would say the machine didn't do that. I did that. Yeah. Right. Right. So program it for that but purpose. That's sure. Yeah. Deliberate programming. Are you saying and Facebook deliberately programmed this its programming quite deliberately, based on what I've read? This programming said the following: Russians give us rubles, and you can hack the election. Well, hopefully that can come out in more detail. Well, um, they, they already yeah. said it. Oh, did I miss something? Because the way I understand they this said, is yes, we took it, and they said we human beings didn't know it because we didn't bother to check. Yeah, I mean, well, that's no excuse. <laughs> I don't know. I think I think what we're struggling with is so they're bad people out there, right? They're they're the Russians who were in this to hack the election. There, you know, were apparently some people in our political system who were you know encouraging and supporting them. There are you know um, state sponsored agents that that hack for you know strategic or economic reasons. There are criminals that hack into things, and. I think part of what you're pointing up, Reed, which is true, is that uh, even if the the Facebooks and Googles of the world, they, they're not trying to do those harmful or illegal things, they have a business model that basically makes it valuable to do anything that increases engagement and, and can allow that to happen. I, I think what we're struggling with I'm saying, is I'm where saying you draw a line. more than that, Kevin. I'm saying the following. If I make an automatic weapon or a booster to that weapon that permits this guy in Las Vegas to murder 50-some-odd people in a few seconds or whatever exact, whatever horrible exact, exact thing it was, if I do that, then I'm liable. And if, and if Congress declines to pass the law that makes me liable, that's a sad thing. But in fundamental uh, you know, concepts of right and wrong and tort, I'm pretty clearly liable. I knew that someone was going to use that weapon for this purpose sooner or later, and I said, fine with me. So, so Reid, I, I think I agree with you that, that Facebook has some liability here, but the, the thing I'm having trouble with is this notion that they knew someone is going to use the weapon for this purpose, for example, because the way I see this is, you know, Facebook has created a system where anyone who wants to advertise or promote certain information to audiences can pay to do that. And they're saying whoever wants to advertise to our audiences and is willing to pay for it will let you do that. And their argument is essentially that the scale at which their operation works, they cannot have human beings sit and evaluate each ad that comes in or um, and, and determine whether this is something that 
um, is consistent with whether it's internal policies or, or the law or whatever. And so they have an automated system and they have algorithms that are deciding if there are certain ads that violate certain norms. And at the end of the day, they've checked for a bunch of things and they didn't realize this is uh, something that could have happened. Now they're going to add a bunch of controls for this. But again, next year it might be something else and they'll realize this and they'll have to react to it. And reacting is not enough. But the argument is this is at a scale where they cannot have human beings screen every every little thing there, right? Then yeah. So they, and then I guess they need to descale it. You know the old expression... Ignorance of the law is no defense. Well, actually, ignorance of the law is no defense. All and right. if and what they're trying to say is, well, you know, ignorance of the law is no defense, but ignorance of the capabilities of our own machines is our new defense. Now, I would just ask you all, ignorance of the capability of our machines is their defense? All right, I mean, we we we've, we've really missed you so sense. much on the show. We we really appreciate the uh, you know the the perspective. Um, <laughs> uh, no, but these are these are important issues. Um, I mean, we're, you know, the, it, the, there are you know serious horrible things that have been done using these platforms, and it's it's worth raising them. Well, let me be, just let me. I just want to jump in. Wait, what? Just about, let's be disturbing about something else. If you want to, if you want to uh, move on, is there any? You, you talked. One of you talked earlier about how there's a work in progress. Well, where exactly would you identify the great themes of progress in the in the uh, internet ecosystem? Where would you identify the great themes of, of actual progress? Yeah, well, let's let, let's pause for a minute, and then we can come back to that because uh, I just want to let anyone know if you've just tuned in, you're wondering what you're hearing here. Uh, that this is the digital show on Sirius XM Business Radio. Uh, and you're hearing a special uh, show. This is the last live show of the digital show. So we've brought back all four of our hosts over our nearly four-year run. Uh, I'm Kevin Werbach. Uh, we also have in studio Karthik Harsanagar and Lauren Feldman. And on the phone, also uh, Reed Hunt. Uh, and uh, we've been talking about um, the, uh, the, the, the good and the bad uh, and uh, focusing a lot on the bad that is potential that is happening with uh, the Internet and social media platforms. Let me just see. Uh, maybe maybe this will help us a little. Um, we have a clip um, getting back to something that we were talking about uh, earlier in the conversation about journalism. I think I think part of what you're um, getting at, Reed, is you know, we, we traditionally had these communications platforms that were very powerful, controlled what everyone in the country saw. But we had the ideas of journalism and the, the practices of journalism, as well as a whole sort of set of legal rules about responsibilities of journalists. And that's really been undermined. So let me, let me just um, play, see if we can play this clip. This is from one of my shows back the, the first year in 2014 with Jeff Jarvis, who's a longtime media executive with major media companies and, and now is at the, uh, the CUNY Journalism School uh, and someone who was early on with blogs and with social media. And so um, let's just play a little clip about what he said about this uh, now uh, three and a half years ago and, and see if that's relevant for us today. We in media worked in an industry that was built upon controlling the scarcity. Now we live in a world uh, of an economy that is based on abundance. And I celebrate that. I love that. Uh, everybody can now speak. There are some, some problems lately that uh, have been attributed to Twitter that, oh, my God, their growth rate is low. And the percentage of people who – only 40% of people who use Twitter write for it. Well, that's a hell of a lot better than the probably 0.001% of newspaper people who, ever, people who ever touched newspapers who wrote for them. There's an incredible opening up of voices. But that also necessarily means that there's a huge increase in the volume of noise. And, and in a democracy, I celebrate that. But I do think there is a, this opens up an opportunity. When I have journalists come to me and say, oh, there's this problem, there's all this junk and noise, I say, whenever you see a problem, look for the opportunity in it. And the opportunity here is indeed to find some quality, to, to curate the best, to verify that witnesses are really witnesses, to get the facts. I won't apologize for seeing the value of all that, but I don't want to have that at the exclusion of many voices. Hearing people just talk as they would uh, on a corner of Times Square or a booth in Denny's, which is what the Internet is really like, is also valuable because you get to hear the voices of people you couldn't hear before. That has value. But at the moment that you need to get an answer to a question that's reliable or at the moment you need, need to know what's really going on with the story or really happening in politics or the moment you want somebody to investigate that crooked politician we have lots of here in New Jersey, um, then 
that's where you bring in the professionals. And the professionals have a role, but not to the exclusion of the grand, wonderful cacophony we now have in the Internet. Okay, Lauren, that seems to be along the lines of what you were saying earlier, that uh, you know, there's all the problems Reed talked about, but at least now we have these new voices that can spring up. Yeah, I really, I, I do believe that. Uh, I mean, I started as a journalist before the internet existed, and um, I was a magazine journalist, and I loved the idea of having the opportunity to spend a ton of time to uh, shine a light on something and write the definitive story about something. The economics of that changed. It became harder and harder to do, and then the internet came along, and it opened up different kinds of opportunities, as Jeff Jarvis was just saying there. And I wouldn't want to go back. I wouldn't want to lose that. I mean, you know, t- Twitter's a mess. But I consider it an incredible resource. I'm addicted to that mess. And there are voices on in that mess that I wouldn't want to live without right now. And many of them are not professional journalists. They're people who, you know, for whatever reason, know their stuff and have found a voice and a following. But with, with the algorithms and what Reed was talking about, can journalists still, or, or even journalists defined in this really broad way, still play that role of, of being a watchdog and exposing problems and doing something about them? They can. I think it. You know, the economics are difficult, uh, and and that's where the problem lies. I think, uh, especially you know, local media is what I worry about the most. Uh, the New York Times is going to be there. We may not know at what size and what level of ambition, but it will be there. The New- Washington Post will be there. A handful of other publications will be there. Uh, you know, how good will the journalism be in here in Philadelphia? How good will it be in Baltimore? How good will it be in Dallas? Those are, you know, really difficult questions. And if, if something needs to be investigated in Dallas, who's going to do that? I'm, I, you know, I, I'm not sure. So, Reed, let me ask you: How would I mean? Is there any way to bring the journalists back? Because the, the you know, the liability for the Facebooks of the world doesn't reconstitute journalism. I mean, the answer is that there are two great uh, uh, publishing uh, mediums uh, today. I think everyone would agree with that, right? And and one is called Google and one is called Facebook. Isn't that, would everyone agree with this? I'm not sure what you mean. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, It's those websites that the uh, great volume of attention goes to in order to see material. Well, yeah, if I'm creating material, uh, those are two important platforms for my material to well, get you're, discovered. You're saying important. They are. They dwarf everything else. Agreed. Agreed. Right? They're, they're like they're the two colossal colossus colossi that guard the <laughs> harbor, and neither one of them contributes anything material to the actual job of journalism. Anything. They provide a platform. But they're they're no. They're no more sensate than the trucks that deliver the Washington Post and paper to a declining number of households, right? They don't. They don't provide. They don't hire journalisms. They don't journalists. They don't pay uh, magazine writers. They use the uh, various. Uh, uh, let's call them. Uh, um, loopholes or constraints of uh, copyright uh, to extract virtually all of the advertising revenue and provide no support uh, in, in the dollar and cent terms. And you mentioned quite rightly local um, uh, newspapers, for example, but it's all been hollowed out. There's no local radio news of any kind at all, local radio news of any kind at all. There's no uh, um, regional news or city-based news of any kind at all in, found in broadcast TV anymore. Uh, you have just a few, a few people that uh, even have airtime. And a friend of mine is the uh, publisher of a, uh, a major Midwest uh, newspaper, uh, which huge industries, amazing issues. They are not down to. Uh, one and a half people in their Washington office. One and a half. Right. Uh, no, but the question is, what do we Facebook what do we do about that? Google yeah. don't provide any financial support worth talking about. But how do you make them provide financial support? Uh, yeah. uh, law could be changed. Uh, there's many examples. Um, so, so if you want to go back into ancient history, uh, the reason that broadcast uh, affiliates and networks were kept separate was to have a negotiation in which there would be money transferred to the local affiliates. That was an example. Um, 
you know, the, in, in the case of all kinds of publishing, there's an array of rights that causes money to be uh, transferred to the creators. That's, that's what, what uh, happens with respect to music on the radio, right? There's a whole system to make sure that money flows. So that's what we do when we want money to flow. We step in and we create uh, changes in laws. But what's happened with Facebook and Google is that they have, have really captured the political system and um, they're immune from these kinds of regulatory interventions. If you want to call them taxes, they're not really taxes, but if you want to call them that, they're immune from that. See, I, I don't know that I agree that having them pay uh, solves the problem because uh, to me, um, you know, they, they are par they're already partly doing some of that. So, for example, Google will show ads on other properties and, and compensate for them and so on. And, and really, for me, the, the solution is how do we better regulate them and hold them accountable? It's not so much that, hey, if uh, Facebook... You know, for every dollar it earned, it uh, gave five cents or whatever to uh, journalists or, or news sites. Would that have solved the fake news problem? I don't think so. Would that have solved Google's, uh, you know, recent algorithmic bias issues? I don't think so. I think we just need a different regulatory framework for, for some of these guys. Well, what, uh, well, I, I wasn't talking now about uh, the fake news issue. You, you, we, you had enough of that. Uh, okay. <laughs> I'm talking about the fact that the end of journalism. We had all news reporting was supported by uh, subscriptions and advertising. We we know that, right? It wasn't charitable. Yeah. There's no, there's no way to get what you want in terms of an informed society. There's no way to get it through eleemosynary activities alone. And all of the bloggers in their pajamas added together just don't do the job. I think we agree with that. Uh, mm -hmm. If we if we all do agree with that, then the question is, well, the subscription revenue has just been eviscerated, and the advertising revenue steadily goes down, steadily goes down. It's it hasn't plateaued. If you talk, you guys talk to people in newspapers and in other print publications, nothing has plateaued. What we're clearly on a path to is having only the family-owned business called the New York Times and only the Bezos-backed business called the Washington Post do all do all of the of the daily news coverage in the United States. That's the path we're on. Okay, so we are going to have to take a break uh, because uh, we're actually past our uh, normal uh, end of the half hour, uh, and uh, we need to uh, do that. Um, but I think this is really illustrated um, part of you know, what we wanted to do here, which is uh, the world and technology has changed an awful lot in just three or four years. This is not really a conversation that uh, we would have uh, had, uh, I think, in 2013, 2014. Maybe we should have. Um, but uh, certainly what you're saying, Reed, is, is something that, you know, there's a lot of attention being paid to it because of what's happened. So we'll need to take just a quick break and we'll come back with uh, more conversations and uh, turn it over next to uh, Lauren Feldman to lead our talk. This is The Digital Show on Sirius XM Business Radio. All right, we are back on The Digital Show. I am Kevin Werbeck, professor at the Wharton School, here for our final live show uh, where we've brought back all of the hosts from the show, myself, Kartik Osanagar, Lauren Feldman, and Reed Hunt. Um, and we've just had a um, uh, very uh, dynamic, shall we say, um, but important conversation about whether the Internet has actually made the world better and some of the ways uh, in terms of the whole media and information ecosystem has actually made it worse. We're going to shift gears a little, and uh, in this next segment, uh, Lauren Feldman is going to lead our conversation and take it in a somewhat different direction. Uh, and we'll start with uh, another clip from a uh, previous guest on the show. Uh, this is uh, Tim O'Reilly, uh, who runs a major Silicon Valley conference and publishing and uh, venture capital uh, firm. Um, and uh, he was talking about his view of the future of work. Imagine those workers upskilled you know, with, with uh, you know, Google Glass or some other kind of equivalent technology so that they can go out there and do house calls again. Uh, but they're assisted by an AI like Watson uh, to, with diagnosis and able to say, you know, 
uh, doctor, you need to take a look at this, you know, and, and have somebody on call. And there are already companies are playing with this. You know, eight, right. I just saw a demo from, from Dreamforce uh, where, uh, you know, HP is, you know, working on, you know, basically their printer repairman able to sort of call back to the office with, a, you know, an augmented reality, uh, you know, setup where they can actually show in real time, uh, you know, what they're seeing so that some expert back at the office can help debug the problem. You know, there's so many ways that this technology can be used to solve new kinds of problems. All right. So, Lauren, I'm going to turn it over to you in just one second. But let me just remind everyone, uh, if you are listening in, we uh, welcome your calls as well. As usual, the number is one eight four four wharton one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. All right, Lauren, so you hear a lot of pitches like that. What do you think? Uh, I think it's fascinating. That was a great clip. Um, my focus on it is a little bit different. You know, I'm uh, my uh, my job at Forbes is to uh, cover entrepreneurship and business ownership. And what I have been focusing on more and more lately, and actually it came up a lot hosting this show, uh, is the gap that I think exists between the exciting new technologies that we're always hearing about and what actually gets put to use by entrepreneurs and business owners. And, you know, Tim O'Reilly's there talking about augmented reality. It's really exciting. But there are a lot of business owners who don't have websites yet. Uh, I don't know the exact numbers, but I, I know it's significant. And, you know, maybe maybe they're just not going to make it. That's that's entirely possible. Um, but but even, even young entrepreneurs who are just getting started now and are, you know, digital natives, I think, struggle with the technology that, that's coming down the road. One of my frequent guests on the digital show was a guy named Gene Marks, who is a consultant. He's based here in Philadelphia. He helps business owners um, with technology issues. He specializes in particular on uh, CRM, customer relations uh, management software. And whenever I had him on the air, uh, the phone lines would just light up because people are just struggling so much. And that's that's a really basic technology. You know, it's 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 not that complicated. What is complicated about it is deciding which of the many options to choose and figuring out how it works with all the other technology you have. So much of this stuff is not made to be easily integrated with, um, you know, uh, other software you may use, including the way that you uh, handle your your books, the way you pay your vendors, it can be hard to get it all together. And for a lot of business owners, I think it's um, it it just freezes them. They it seems too complicated. They're they're too busy as it is. They're mm -hmm. pressed for time and for money. They don't know who to turn to for advice. And, um, you know, I, I think sometimes we need to focus more on the technology we already have and aren't making good use of rather than, you know, the, the pie in the sky stuff that we all dream might be coming down the road. I, I'd really love to hear what you guys think about that. Yeah. So, um, Lauren, I, I had previously co-founded a company that used to uh, provide marketing services for small businesses. And uh, I'm somewhat familiar with, with the problem that you uh, just described. At that time, this was in 2005. We were trying to convince a lot of small businesses to move their ad dollars to advertising on Google, for example, and they were still focused on yellow pages. Um, and we were trying to tell them, <laughs> look, you know, consumers have moved on from yellow pages, so you need to move to this new medium. But that was a big switch for them. They were used to, you know, cutting a check and saying, give me a half page ad. But now with Google, they had to say, I want these 10 keywords, but, you know, not those other related keywords. And I want to target in, in this particular zip code, but not in that other zip code. So it was uh, pretty challenging for them. And, you know, I saw this a lot. A um, lot of clients, we were saying, we'll help you advertise online. And we find out they don't even have a website to begin with, Right. Um, and so then we say, okay, before we start advertising for you, let's start by getting you a website made. Um, and so, you know, I saw it a lot, and, and I'm not sure that there's one reason for it. Sometimes it was, a, you know, you need a generational transition, right? So there's a bit of that. Sometimes there is, you know, there's so much going on for a small business. They're fighting fires every day, so... You know, uh, how do you keep up with the new technologies that are constantly coming your way? So, you know, it's not like a small business has, 
you know, a marketing department, a technology department, and a CRM department, and so on. It's the same, the business owner that's got to juggle all this stuff. So, uh, you know, how do they do that? So there's a lot of challenges for them, but I completely agree with you. Even the most basic technologies, let's start with those, especially when it comes to small businesses, and then we can talk about things like um, augmented reality and, and these other uh, more fancy uh, things out there. I don't know, Kevin. What's your reaction? Oh no, I'm 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 thinking about the connection to the conversation that we were having before the break, actually, which is not you know, where where you started with it, but you know, it's the same issue with campaigns and elections. Lots of money is spent on it. It's basically a, a marketing business, um, and there's all the traditional ways you do things. You go and knock on doors and so forth, and you you know take out you know hundreds of millions of dollars or billions of dollars of television ads. Um, but you know, everyone sort of understands that this new technology is a way to do campaigns in fundamentally different ways. Um, and there's been lots of excitement about you know when first you know Howard Dean was the first one who started raising money online, and then you know, Obama and you know, Bernie Sanders and so forth. Um, but you know, a lot of what we were talking about, and, and Reed was talking about before, was it turns out that the people who really understood how to do this this time around were the Russians. Uh, you were the ones who were trying to break the system. And, and I, you know, that it, it's, not, it's not the same kind of problem you're talking about. It's a similar kind of issue, I think, in terms of we've got all this great technology that not everyone really knows how to use. I think that's a great point. And I think part of what you're suggesting there is that it, it keeps changing. I mean, we've, we've learned this at Forbes. Um, you know, Forbes was in desperate trouble five or six years ago and then uh, came up with a new business model uh, that took better advantage of the web and kind of figured things out. And it, it worked pretty well for them, they, what they call the contributor model. And, you know, it's a long tail strategy. They got a lot of people to write for it. And they were able to actually make money, uh, which was uh, a rare thing for an old line media company moving on to the web. It didn't happen that often. But but just when you think you got to figure it out, it keeps changing. And it's changed multiple times since then. And even in the last couple of years, we've struggled because um, our audience shifted from desktop to mobile much more quickly than we expected. Uh, and this gets back to something that Reed was talking about a little bit before. I mean, you know, the, the cost of that, you know, what we can the advertising revenue that we can generate. Um, when our audience went from two thirds on desktop to two thirds on mobile, it meant less revenues for us because we can charge less for an ad on mobile than we can for an ad on desktop. And that just means we're, we're constantly trying to reinvent ourselves. Uh, same thing with what you were referring to before, Kartik. I think with, you know, you, you were talking about getting uh, businesses onto Google and figuring out pay-per-click and the more adventurous ones of them probably tried it and probably had some success with it. But the more people do it, the less effective it can become because it drives up the price. You know, you, maybe you figure out a keyword that works for you and then other people see that happening and the price of that keyword goes up and maybe it's no longer economically viable for you to use that. So, you, you know, the thing that you thought was going to drive your business suddenly loses value and you have to find something else. And then there are all these other platforms that, that are getting introduced. Uh, you know, I've, I can look back over the last five or six years and give you examples of businesses that figured out something really amazing in social media, just you know, a, a marketing insight that saved or turned around or made their business, and then it stopped working. And, and what did they do then? It's, it's, it's a really challenging environment. Um, I, 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 you know, I'm not sure what the, uh, the answer to that is. Well, it comes down to a, a different attitude and a recognition that things are changing all the time. Uh, and I don't think you can get away from you. You've got to dive in and understand the technology and what it can do for you. Um, you know, I mean, a lot of this it comes down to you know, when you have it's, it's it's not even really necessarily a matter of age, but when you've got a business that traditionally has run a certain way, and this is, I mean, I, I see this a lot with with big companies as well. Um, you've got legacy systems, you've got legacy processes, you've got people who understand the way the business model has always worked. Um, and then you know, as things change, there's new possibilities. It's it's much harder for you, even if you've got smart people running in, it's, you, know, you can see all the trends and you know, hire you know, expensive consultants to tell you about them. You, you just can't just pivot away from that uh, and just you know, wish away all the existing systems that you have the way uh, a new company that comes in and starts from scratch and is, is basically doesn't have any of the legacy thinking, doesn't have any of the legacy investment, um, there's nothing to tear out, doesn't necessarily have the legacy customers either. They don't have the legacy revenues, but that actually gives them a, a new opportunity 
to in some ways move faster. So I think a lot of that is what's happening. And, and it you know, it's again, it sort of relates to what we were talking about before with the journalists. It's not that, you know, journalists were were sort of dumb and didn't realize that the media industry was changing. Um, it's just, you know, when you've got an existing model, um, you're often in a, in a bad place when the, the whole environment shifts. Yeah, I have to agree. I mean, a, a couple of reactions to that. The first is, um, yeah, as you guys are saying, this is a world where technology is constantly changing. It's the kind of world where a technology professor like me can get outdated if uh, in in a in a semester <laughs> if you're not keeping up, right? So, uh, do you really feel that way? Yeah, sure. I mean, every semester my students are kind of bringing up a topic. Hey, how about this topic? Well, we didn't discuss this. There's a new dating app every semester, Lauren. <laughs> <laughs> yes, actually, it sounds funny, but the first time I heard uh, about Tinder was in the classroom. I was like, what exactly is that? And I had to go Google it after the class. And I was like, oh, okay, so now there's this new thing uh, these kids are using. But um, yeah, there's there's always something new. I mean, Tinder is a, uh, is one example, but it could even be in uh, in in most uh, more serious domains, and there's lots of changes. But the other thing I think, for from coming back to your point about small businesses, is I think there's a silver lining here, and and that is that we're moving to a world where there's a lot of, um, you know, this essentially this uh, SaaS revolution is also entering the small business space. So companies, software as a service, yeah, yeah. software as a service. Yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, so you know the I'm, whole. I'm, I'm doing acronyms as a service for you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Kevin. I'll uh, reach out to you anytime I need that. Uh, but yeah, the whole idea is you don't have to spend on this expensive CRM software or or an expensive website uh, and all of that. And then two years later, your website design is outdated, your mobile app is outdated, or your CRM software is outdated. Everything is available as a service. So you want a website, you don't you don't have to hire a coder and build a custom website for you anymore you just go use one of the you know platforms and there are so many out there that you can use shopify or whatever else um and so i think that does simplify things a lot well that you know that does seem kind of like a silver lining and for many perhaps it has been but you know once again there there are risks involved and things changed and you know here you have a situation where somebody's coming to a business owner and saying yeah you know SaaS we're going to put all your stuff in the cloud all your data we'll just put it in the cloud what could possibly go wrong um, and of course we found out that things can go wrong and uh, suddenly you know your data security is a much bigger issue than you could have anticipated and and even huge corporations can't figure it out so the business you know a small business owner sits there and thinking. You know, if if these big corporations can't figure out what to do, what what chance do I have? So once again, they they look at the decision of going, you know, SaaS, going cloud, and think, you know, I don't know. Does this make any sense? Yeah, and uh, Reed, uh, if you have any thoughts on this, we want to give you a chance to weigh in as well, because I know uh, you're not going to be with us in the next hour. Well, here's the uh, here two here are a couple of trends that I think are inexorable. These are not my opinions. These are the opinions of everybody that I talk to. Um, the idea that uh, a business in the United States uh, would have an enterprise-based cloud, have its own cloud, uh, would um, install servers, uh, would manage its data, would protect it, that's a dead idea. Uh the cloud services are going to be provided as simply as possible by a handful of cloud companies, right? Uh, Microsoft's Azure and Amazon and uh, those two principally uh, for the enterprise space. Uh, and they're going to win. And they will have mere versions in China that are just as consolidated. And uh, Europe will not um, be able to keep up, and so they'll end up one way or another having to accept the Chinese or the American uh, company alternatives. So vast consolidation is uh, totally in the cards for, for all of data, for data management, for security, all the way down to provisioning any conceivable use. So it'll be, when we talk about anything as a service, it'll be based on the platform of the new oligopolies. And no one has any uh, notion that I've run into uh, that amounts to a, a competitive
competitive idea from a technological perspective, and no, and there's no there's no regulatory idea. There, uh, people could barely define the nature of the problem. Well, you know, what does this uh, signify? It means tremendous power over the shape of commerce being vested in three or at the most firms. We have never, I'm not talking about one sector. I'm not talking about the telephone industry having uh, just an AT&T or the railroad industry having two or three uh, companies. I'm talking about all of commerce being on the platform of just uh, maybe three companies. That is a scale of oligopoly power, the like of which we've never seen. And I don't think I'm wrong about the trend. So maybe just to try to wrap this up a little bit, uh, I tend to see this more from the perspective of that small business owner who's struggling, struggling with all this technology coming his or her way. I'm curious, have you guys thought about it all in terms of the technology companies who produce this technology? What could they be doing better to make sure that people actually understand how to use their stuff? Uh, Kartik, you mentioned that you know you, you started a company that went after this very market. Uh, did you Do you think you guys did a good job of reaching out and educating and making sure people knew what their options were? And did you learn anything that could could help. You know, I mean, things have just gotten more complicated since then. Uh, it's, if it was overloaded then, it's worse now. Any thoughts on that? You know, I'll, I'll say that the things we did actually hurt us because, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, we had to do a lot of education, customer education. We had to roll out a services team and account management team that uh, educated the clients. All of that made us less of a product platform and more of a services company which increases your costs, which uh, reduces your valuation in the private market. So, but this is what we had to do to uh, really get uh, to our, get our clients, these small businesses, to adopt. So, uh, that's the, that's I guess what we found out: education, educating the customer is expensive, and holding their hands and walking them through technology is expensive. And, uh, you know, I, I think uh, that's an unfortunate reality of the space. Yeah, if I could just jump in here, I mean, uh, to tie it in also to what, what Reed said, is we're going to have to take a break in just a minute. Uh, <coughs> excuse me, if it's in the company's interest, if their business model is such to do that, then they'll do that. But, you know, there are such these forces of consolidation that the value proposition is making these bigger and bigger and bigger platforms uh, and being able to serve everyone in a kind of automated way as opposed to going through the small businesses, that's what they're going to do. So I, I, I think Reed is right that that's kind of a fundamental challenge underlying this. It's not about the small business market per se, but it's about whether it's in the interest of the companies to control all the data to serve that market. Um, we are unfortunately going to have to take a break, and uh, that means we're going to have to say farewell to Reed because I know you can't be with us the next hour. But thank you so much for coming back. It's great to talk to you again, uh, and uh, glad to have you on the you. show. Thanks for doing this for the last bunch of years. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank, thank, thank you. Reed. Bye. So we'll take a quick break, and then we'll come back in the next hour with two more segments. On the digital show, the final live episode uh, of the digital show on Sirius XM Business Radio. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.